Like a lot of researchers, I'm thinking about the built environment a lot, thinking about how the intensification of investment in real estate in a lot of cities has driven up property values and then contributed to a lot of social problems such as homelessness and evictions and displacements that vary by geography. That's Emily Rosenman. And Sophie Weber recently caught up with Emily at the American Association of Geographers Conference in the US. Emily, can you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Emily and I finished my PhD at UBC in 2017. And I'm currently a postdoc at the University of Toronto in the Geography and Planning Department. And in the summer, I'm starting a job um, as a faculty member at Penn State University in the Geography Department. My name is Sophie. I'm a lecturer in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. Emily and I have similar interests in that we both do research about new kinds of financial measures to manage emerging problems. I'm looking at how the way that finance works in cities to create a lot of inequalities is starting to be actually incorporated back into finance as people who are in control of capital are looking for both new things to invest in and then also looking at a lot of kind of bad PR basically from this um, from this process in which there's increasing recognition about the inequalities that the rise of finance and urban space is causing in cities. Sophie's talking to Emily about social impact investments. So what is a social impact investment? Well, it's a way for governments to outsource and commodify the services that are provided to address social disadvantage, such as poverty. Under this model of social service provision, the government draws up a contract with an investor to address a social issue, say, housing poverty. Then they outline a set of social targets And if the social program meets these targets, then the investor gets paid. This all sounds okay, doesn't it? Over to Sophie and Emily. What does the financialization of urban space mean and how does it create these inequalities? Sure. Within within, um, capitalism, I would say, you always are going to have some level of inequality. There's never going to be full employment, for example. There's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be social problems if you organize ways uh, or organize things within the capitalist market. What I'm arguing in this research is that this perpetual existence of, of poverty is becoming a really big image problem for the financial industry. You know, it's, it's always existed, but there's a lot of sort of political changes in society that are making this kind of more and more present as, as a problem for the financial industry. And so looking at this research that I'm doing, the idea of social finance or of social impact investing is that these problems can just be incorporated right back into the structure of investments and then can be solved in two ways. The first way is by turning poverty into something that is profitable. And so the main thrust of social finance is that you can do good and make profit at the same time. But then also offsetting it in more of an ideological way. So looking at poverty is something that doesn't necessarily have to exist in capitalism. That's a really big part of this industry. And social finance offers an opportunity to do that. So there is both the chance to address these social problems using finance, but also make money at the same time. 
We just have to organize the finances just right so as to make sure that the social problems that are created within capitalism are then solved with the same kinds of marketing instruments. Can you give us an example of the kind of social finance products that you're talking about? So a lot of people may have heard of social impact bonds. These are usually done through the state, and they're, they're global at this point, where there's some sort of social problem, maybe homelessness or very rapidly arising levels of incarceration. And the government will try to get an investor to pay up front for some sort of social intervention. And then the way this works in practice is that the investor will be repaid based on the social outcomes of the project. So, for example, there was one in New York City that was looking at recidivism at Rikers Island, backed by Goldman Sachs and other kind of very high-profile investors. And the idea was that if a social intervention was put through where the level of recidivism dropped, Goldman Sachs and other investors would be repaid based on the percentage by which recidivism dropped. Can you talk me through the logics according to an investor? So I think the greater context of this is the way in a lot of societies, the market is still looked at as the way of solving social problems. So for a social and finance investor, they might look at a social problem like poverty or homelessness and say, this is just, you know, a market inefficiency. And if we do get the investing formula right, then we can solve this within the market and also have investors making profit and it will all be very efficient and there's really no downside. I think there's also, like I mentioned, this image problem for finance. One of the cases that Emily has studied is this housing development in the San Francisco Bay Area called the Rochelle. San Francisco is a key site of social impact investing. There's a lot of capital flowing around the city from the big tech money in the area, but also extremely high levels of inequality, the highest levels in the US. So there's also a large population that are requiring new forms of social impact investing. So the developer bought this rundown building and turned it into multi-unit housing. Residents live in a bedroom and a small kitchenette. They also have a whole series of social programs which are meant to help their residents get back on track. People are, are thinking about finance as a main perpetuator of inequality in our society. And so for a social finance investor, this kind of seems like the ideal win-win solution where you can both profit and then ostensibly solve a social inequality, but I think often maybe more important to be seen as solving a social inequality. So in that example, you've mentioned the financial actor, that's Goldman Sachs, and then there's presumably a population who are being targeted through this program. But there must also be a variety of other actors, intermediaries between those two ends of the, of the social finance relationship. Who else is involved? Yeah, that's one of the primary things I wanted to find out in my research on this industry is who is involved and what are the layers of intermediaries between investors and the target population is it's usually known in their terms. So there's a lot in there. There are all sorts of new actors springing up to connect these dots. So you have a lot of 
boutique firms that are arising to advise large financial institutions and also family offices or philanthropists on how best to use their money in this way. And then the entire thing also relies a lot on the nonprofit infrastructure in countries like the U.S. and Canada and Great Britain, which is already providing services that address impoverishment and other kinds of social problems. And so this also has a really huge effect on the nonprofit industry because now they're being incorporated into these financial channels in some ways that are familiar, but also in new ways. And I think one of the newer ways is having to prove the intervention in whatever social problem in the terms of finance. And so this looks like proving its profitability, but also proving to the kinds of investors in these products that the people who are benefiting from the project are deserving in various ways. Are the projects, the interventions, are they changing through this process or are they the kinds of projects that this nonprofit sector have always been delivering? So on one side, it's the incorporation of these long-standing structures into new kinds of financial portfolios and also new kinds of investors entering the market. But on the other side, there is a lot of interest in the idea of social innovation. Uh, I think partially coming because a lot of this capital is coming from the kind of Silicon Valley technological solutions side of things. There's a lot of interest in the kind of new disruptive solutions to very long-standing social problems that investors are getting really excited about and throwing a lot of capital at. Could you talk us through like where social finance comes from, where it goes, and what the implications are of that kind of those, those relations? So there are a couple key sites in the development of social finance. The model comes a lot from the United Kingdom. That was kind of like the start of a lot of things like social impact bonds. The thought leaders, as they like to call themselves behind the industry, also come out of Silicon Valley and also out of the philanthropic foundation community in the United States. A lot of philanthropic foundations will claim that they've been doing social finance forever and now it's just called something new, especially the Rockefeller Foundation claims to have invented it in 2007. So there's the one side is this sort of thought leadership, this the ideology, the ideas behind solving these, these things in this fashion. The finance, I think, comes a lot from key financial centers throughout the globe. So London, New York, more and more San Francisco. And then social impact bonds especially are spreading throughout the globe. So all large cities that are main financial touch points in the global economy are becoming really important to the spread of, of social impact bonds throughout the globe. And then I think the third aspect is the state. So there is huge state interest in this kind of solution because it reduces both the amount of capital that the state has to put up to solve social problems, but also the kind of political being on the hook <laughs> for the government um, to solve social problems. So if it can be contracted out as it already has been to nonprofits in many places, but then also to the financial industry, this insulates the state in many ways from the political problems of poverty and inequality and, and allows the state to put up financial actors as kind of the new fronts of solving problems in this manner. So the obvious question is, does this kind of investment work? Does it have the effect of, of reducing those social problems as well as creating profits for those investors? 
I think that's also a question of, of scale of the program. So if you're looking at one intervention, I would say yes. So in some of the things I looked at that related to housing in the San Francisco Bay Area, I looked at one specific project. I looked at people who live in a specific building that is supposed to give housing to people who were formerly homeless. And I would say the answer is yes. You know, this very small number of people in the building are benefiting in, in certain ways from this kind of structure. But at a large scale, it doesn't. I think if you zoom out and you look at how we address social problems more broadly at the level of a city or the level of a country or society generally, the answer becomes a lot more complicated. So if you're looking to profit and also address a social problem, there are many kinds of social problems that have not yet been able to be addressed profitably. And so what I see from this is a kind of filtering of social priorities through the logics of finance and different things are spit out the other end. So if investors need to profit while addressing a social problem, only certain kinds of problems in certain places are going to be addressed. And the investors end up having a lot of control over which problems and which places are benefiting in this way. And the other thing that I found through looking really closely at some of the financial documents behind these instruments is that what I kind of consider to be a general condition of impoverishment in cities is kind of the background condition for this whole structure to function. Uh, so you need to have a level of poverty in a city like San Francisco so that you can find the people that check the boxes of various state programs that kind of subsidize these instruments and also can be folded into the kind of reporting that investors desire on the social intervention. And those people are kind of creamed out of the crop of, of urban poor and then used in this way to become part of a financial instrument. But what it doesn't do is address the structural creation and reproduction of impoverishment in urban spaces. You're listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers, and we're listening in on a conversation between Sophie Weber and Emily Rosenman about social impact investments. And next, we'll hear about when these investments don't make a profit. So what happens when a project doesn't make a profit and when it doesn't meet the social quotas or social ambitions that whoever commissioned the, the investment requires. If an intervention fails, investors tend to move on and look for something new. And there isn't a lot of investment or attention to trying to bring long-term structural solutions to the conditions of impoverishment. The implications of social finance are, first, that we hand over the governance and management of poverty to philanthropists, to private investors, rather than having more democratic means of solving these social problems. 
But if you really dig into the financial documents, like loan applications and the way these things are actually set up, you'll see the welfare state and all of these actors in the background as really crucial to the, the profitability conditions of these, these instruments. And since you know, financial investors are very, very interested in risk, that becomes one of the major things. So if you look at an application for an affordable housing development, they look at various things that will, quote, de-risk the project. And that could be the fact that it has a certain number of state-subsidized rent vouchers for a certain period of time, could be the kinds of state services that are addressing social conditions within the building, could be in the case of housing, tax credits that are given out to developers of low-income housing. And so if you look at the actual financial documents, these things are what is de-risking the, the project. So what is the relationship then between uh, the kind of logic of finance, which suggests that the market will solve this problem, versus the logic of the welfare state, which suggests that the state will continue to subsidize or to continue to pay for these social interventions? I think about this a lot in terms of the labor that goes into finance. So we often think of finance and financialization as these really disembodied processes run by algorithms that have not a lot to do with actual labor. But what I found in my research is that there are a whole bunch of actors and actual people running around checking boxes to make these things work and to produce them as a success. So you have people working at nonprofits, trying to address all the different requirements of investors about who is deserving of help, of then administering all these state programs like rent vouchers that are actually part and parcel of how these things are profitable, and then providing actual social services to residents in this building to make sure that they remain housed. So this idea of remaining housed and then keeping up the flow of rents, just like any other uh, building in the market, is really important. So all of this labor in the background that isn't really acknowledged in the product as a new financial or social innovation is happening in order to produce the conditions of, of profit and also to broadcast this as something that is successful as a social innovation. So that's one of the implications of uh, trying to solve social problems uh, with finance. You mentioned a couple of others in your research. For instance, the creation of this idea of, of, of populations that are particularly deserving, so the creation of an idea of deservingness. Can you talk us through what you mean by that term? Sure. In, for example, an affordable housing project, being deserving is often connected to things like looking for work, like making an income, getting educated, and really trying to move out of affordable housing and become a sort of, you know, self-sufficient person who no longer needs this housing is really crucial for the way investors see this, this housing. So the population needs to be cast as particularly in need of these social impact programs, but also as having been transformed through the social impact programs. I think it's Interesting because it really differs from the way that the people I interviewed in the building see the function of housing in their lives. So a lot of the people in the building where I was doing research were not interested in leaving the building at all. They wanted to stay in the building because they had a really strong community. They had access to support and it was a very big source of stability in their lives. And so here I think you can also see an interesting diversion between what an investor who is not 
an expert in poverty management except for the the financing of this uh, poverty management is a very different view on what a success story is uh, than someone who's actually supposed to be a beneficiary of it. Do you have other examples of the way that the the poor or the target population are able to rework these programs in potentially progressive ways? So far, I think it, in terms of if we're looking at resistance, I would say the scale is usually more at the level of everyday life um, than it would be anything that's particularly organized. You've been listening to City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney. And if you liked this episode, remember there's many more at cityroadpod.org. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.